You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Mario Rogic, who's working on a project called Lambdera, a new way to write web servers using Elm. We talk about Lambdera's design, some of the common questions people ask about it and their answers, and various trade-offs around scaling web services in general. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, Lambdera. Mario, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so Lambdera, you've been working on it, I want to say it's been like five years? Is that right? Yeah, something like that. I mean, I don't know if you could count it as the current form throughout all that time. But yeah, definitely thinking about this problem and trying various things under the Lambdera name for about that time. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to like, for those who aren't familiar, just kind of explain what Lambdera is? Sure. So I guess the buzzword bingo description would be Lambdera is a type safe, full stack web app framework, I suppose, for delightful web apps is the way that I'm pitching it. More more concretely, I suppose, it's basically Elm and the Elm compiler kind of extended to the back end with the same architecture with a couple, like just a really small handful of additional language primitives for sending messages back and forth between the front end and the back end. And the idea that all of that is type safe and the model, as you might know the model in the Elm front end, the model in the Elm back end is kind of exactly the same but Lambda does some magic to just make sure that it's kind of infinitely persisted. So you deal with it like as if it's a persisted database, but without the kind of semantics or overhead of querying an external database in a way that can fail. So a big part of why Lambda exists is because I'm trying to minimize, or I was trying to minimize for myself the amount of glue code that was present in web apps that I would build. I always felt like this, all this glue stuff, eventually, once I recognized it and was kind of able to point at it, it felt so strongly to me that I was like, oh, that's the reason that things spiral out of complexity for me, that I lose my kind of excitement on side projects and web projects in general. And I was like, I didn't feel that in Elm. So I really wanted to see what that was like on like a more kind of holistic surface area. So yeah, that's kind of what, what Lambda is. Okay, cool. So so is this, maybe, the, I don't know if this is a fair analogy, you tell me, but is it kind of as if you can think of it as like, let's pretend that you were like serializing your application state to local storage so that when you refresh the page, it comes back up out of local storage, except instead of it being local storage, it's actually on a server somewhere. But other than that, it's like the same basic, like, just take my application state, serialize it somewhere, and then I can get it back again when I, you know, come back to the same page. Yeah, so that that would be like the first level intuition, and that's not wrong, but there's a little bit more nuance to it. So so the intuition you might have with like the local storage thing is like, okay, well, what if you haven't snapshotted to local storage, right? So say you did that a few seconds ago, and then in between the last snapshot and now, someone closes the tab, right? And then you reopen the tab and you've lost like a few seconds. Well, the Lambda snapshot kind of idea is a little bit different in that actually it works if you know how modern databases works, it kind of works in the same way. It basically uses the fact that Elm has basically this kind of message log and it just persists that message log. And it also uses the fact that because an Elm app is pure and functional, we can replay that message log 
to get back to any state point in any point in time. Kind of similar to how databases will have a log buffer and, and flush those logs out. And so, you know, in the event of a database crash or collapse, you can kind of recover state based on how, how much of those logs you, you want to kind of pull back. So yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So a follow-up question though is like, so I, I get how that works on my computer, but let's say I like, I do a bunch of stuff on my machine and I want to go over to like a friend's house. I used to have this analogy in my head years ago of like, this is back when I was like working on DreamWriter and I was like, what if I'm working on it at home and I go over to a friend's computer and I want to bring it up there. And nowadays I just feel like, I would just bring my laptop. Why would I ever log in to my own thing on someone else's computer? I don't like, I don't remember the last time I did that. I think it might've been at like a public library or something, which these days I would be like, of course I won't do that because someone's going to steal my credentials if I do that. But let's say hypothetically, I, I don't know, I get a new machine. It's never been to Lambda before, or it's never been to this web app that I'm making with Lambda before. How do I, or can I recover my state from my other machine? Yeah, so maybe just to be clear where that kind of analogy falls, falls down, maybe the local storage, just in case that confuses anybody, Lambda isn't literally persisting it like just for your machine. The analogy is the same as you having like a Postgres database locally when you're developing. And then when you deploy to production, you've got a Postgres database in production. And then when you go to your friend's house, I mean, it's kind of up to you. If you take your laptop along, you can continue working on the you know, the database you had locally. So you're the Lambda developer instance that you've got locally in the state that's there. Or if you wanted to, I mean, this isn't kind of user-facing at the moment. There's a highly intuitive interface where you send me a message and say, hey, can I have my snapshot? And I organize to get it to you. <laughs> if you wanted to do that from prod, you, you know, you could pull down your, your production data and, and use that locally as well. So the intuition I think people probably should have is that it's kind of the same as a Postgres database or any kind of, transactional database with the difference being that everything that's in there is re it's it's tightly integrated into your apple the types are integrated and there's no querying between the two right it's it's kind of it's baked in to the language you might say okay so this is not like let's say that i were writing my lmap and i had my model in the like in the front end that's not automatically serialized to the server it's more that i can use the same architecture as i use on the front end on the server with the same like model concept but it is a separate code base like it's not like the model the server and the client have become joined and are like it's automatically persisting like in the local storage example is that fair to say yeah so the way that i try and explain it is like i spent a long time thinking about what are the primitives that we have like conceptually when we do web apps and i kind of came up with six i can't think of any simpler than six so the six are this you have the state that any individual front end has, right? So particular user on your app, you know, they've got their state in the browser. You've got the state that the back end has. That's something that only the back end has, right? And everybody interacts with that. Then you have the events that happen in each individual user's browser. So in Elm, that would be the front end message, right? Like just the, the message, right, of your app. And then Lambda apps have the same thing on the back end. Any events that happen on the back end have a message type. So, so far, they're literally the same, right? Elm architecture on the front, Elm architecture on the back. We've described it just double, right? A normal Elm app would have two, the front end message and the model. So we've duplicated, now we've got four. And then the final two are the missing piece. The final two is the missing piece, which is the front end can talk to the back end. That's another message type. And then the back end can send messages to the front end. So that's the sixth message type. 
And those six pieces, as far as I can figure out, are the kind of like the minimum you need to express any web application. Cool. I never thought about those terms. That's interesting. And also when we talk about our problems, I notice that when we speak about the design of things, we don't, like normally we won't be like, oh, and then you make a HTTP call and that will result, like, you know, we don't speak like that usually. Usually we'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll send the blog post to the back end and the back end will do blah, blah, blah. And then it'll send me this in the result. All right. And so we'll like, we'll naturally talk in these kind of terms, like, oh, the front end has this state and the back end is this. And, you know, when I sent it that, I got this. And the narrative, I think, in our natural language is kind of centered around those six things. But I don't, yeah, I don't know. I haven't really heard them kind of expressed concretely much. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, especially considering that there's so many different ways to do it. I mean, I guess that's one reason for not talking in like, oh, this is going to be HTTP request, because like, in some cases, it might literally not be HTTP, it might be some other wire protocol. Yeah. Or maybe if you're making a game like games will often use like raw TCP or even UDP and not not go over, you know, HTTP at all. Plus, like, HTTP, (laughs) minor tangent, it's always been a little bit weird to me that like, HTTP, those letters stand for hypertext transfer protocol. But like very, very often when we say I'm going to do an HTTP request, we mean I'm going to send not hypertext. It's going to be JSON or like something else other than hypertext. Like the actual browser does hypertext all the time when you visit a URL. But like when you actually say HTTP request, you usually don't mean I'm typing the you know URL into my browser. It's usually you mean I'm going to do something else. And yet at least like, we've gotten away from uh, XML HTTP requests, which was like really just doubly. XML HTTP request is how I like to send my JSON. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> what is yeah, it's a weird sentence. And it'd be even, I think, if you were around in the original like kind of era of HTTP and you could see forward into the future, like what people are now doing with WebSockets, you'd just be like, what the, <laughs> like, what's <laughs> going on? What are they doing? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So to to um, kind of nail in how those kind of six fundamental ideas tie into Lambda, in Lambda, your app is literally six types for those six fundamental things. And that's kind of it. That's kind of it, right? Like, and if you do those six types, that's it. You have a Lambda app, right? And if it type checks, then the kind of guarantee is that, well, if it type checks, then it'll deploy and you literally can't have certain classes of issues within your app. So there is no concept of a message that fails for decoding reasons to the back end. Like you don't even have to write tests for that. Like if it compiles, we guarantee that that's going to be fine. Within a single deploy, right? Because like what if somebody's got an old client and you change the client and server are both like, you know, speaking this particular JSON format, somebody leaves a browser tab open for like a century. And you know, you, you've made several deploys in that time. And now the server doesn't speak the same language anymore. I assume that has to come up. Yeah, absolutely. So that problem is actually where I started. So where my whole journey of Lambda kind of, I think where I can pinpoint the origins of it is I was just getting real, I was learning Haskell and I was going into like the depths of, you know, I discovered type classes and I discovered the M word, all right, monad. And, uh, <laughs> so it's it's like, a safe space. You could, you could talk about the M word. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, <laughs> at that time, I was like, oh man, this is the solution to everything. And I just got deeper and deeper and I went to kind of type families and and all the advanced like Haskell stuff. And I was, I was really kind of getting lost in it. 
And the problem that I kept kind of failing to solve was I, I kept wanting to solve just like migrations, just like database migrations and like the ORM thing, right? And like there's, I mean, the Haskell community is full of like exceedingly clever people and there's some really amazing libraries that have various levels of kind of type guarantees around ORM stuff. But it, it just, it never felt quite right. And the thing that I always kept stumbling on is it was really easy to define a schema and it was really relatively easy to define a schema, define some types, do some querying, like get an app going. And then once you had like production data, like stable data in, in production that you didn't want to lose anymore, it was like a hockey stick level of complexity increase, right? Like now it's like migrate, like expressing migrations and and having like type checking on them and having guarantees. And you would change your code locally to the new thing you wanted. And it's almost like a retrospective thing. Now you got to go back and figure out like, well, okay, this stuff that I've changed against what's in production, like what's going on. Or maybe I came from Rails before that and Rails had a pretty good kind of, or has a pretty good story, like with active record and active record migrations where it's like Rails goes, okay, you know what, we're going to, we're going to be responsible for your whole schema. And then when stuff changes, like, you know, we've got kind of snapshots and it's not automatic, but like you get a sense, right? That like, oh, okay. I've changed schema stuff. I need to write a migration. And yeah, it just, it kept, it kept striking me as just being so painful. And I, I, yeah, I think one of my first talks, even before I, I kind of announced Slimeterra publicly was a talk I did on Evergreen Elm. And I was thinking about this problem and, and being like, what I really wanted was to have type checking between the stuff that I have in production and the app that I have now. Maybe if I get like, here's a dream flow, right? This is what I wanted. I wanted to be like, okay, I have, so I'm just going to stick with Elm because I think that makes the most sense to explain. I think in Elm, it's like you've got this compiler that has really, really fast type checking, right? And so I lean on that really heavily, right? Like I can, I can code quite aggressively and quite recklessly because I know the compiler's got my back, right? Like I, I the compiler's smarter than me and it'll find all my inconsistencies. So I can iterate really rapidly and and you know model my problem and bash stuff out and try it and and figure out the shape and I get it to where I want and I'm having a lovely time right and I'm not waiting for ages to recompile things it's all happening really quickly and I feel really productive and then I get that into production right and now I've got this state what I want to happen now is I want to be able to be like cool that's done but it doesn't matter and I keep screaming away recklessly right I keep changing types I keep doing stuff I keep going for it now I'm at the point where I'm like, great, I've modeled this feature. I've massively changed my data types. I've moved stuff around. I've done crazy things like unspeakable, non-backwards compatible things, right? Normally, if you were in any other language, it would be like, cool, now's the time to start panicking about the mess that you've made and how you're going to get from where you were in production to where you are now, right? But I was always like, but, but why? Like the compiler like the computer's so clever and it has all this rich information about like the types that I've deployed already and the types I have here, like why can't it help me get between the two? So the experience I wanted was to just be able to be like, all right, uh, what if I can, you know, run some command that goes check and it goes, cool. I see that you've changed some stuff. Like, it looks like this stuff has changed. It looks like this stuff hasn't changed. Uh, hey, you know what? Like, cause I'm a computer and I'm pretty good at doing diffs. Like I've also figured out like, Here's most of it for you. You know, here I got confused. You've done some crazy stuff. I don't know. But you know what? Even though I don't get what you've done here specifically, I mean, here's a bunch of helpers for all the stuff that hasn't changed anyway. You're welcome. 
And then for me to be able to be like, all right, cool, that's fine. Let me join those two, right? I've got it's basically going from type A to type B. You know, how do we do that? Well, functions, like that's just a function, right? <laughs> They're good. So I'm, like, yeah, I have a, I'm like, yeah, okay, I need a function that takes a type of A and returns a type of B. A being my old deployed type, and I know all my data is in that type, and B being the new type. So if I can make this function and this function can type check, then that's it. I'm done, right? And then I should be able to be like, cool, hey, app, here's like the new version. Also, here's a function that gets you from the data that you have to the new data that you have. Off you go. And that is basically exactly what Lambda does. Lambda check, not in the current version. In the next version, we'll do much more uh, kind of uh, intelligent migration auto generation for you right now. It just scaffolds the top. But like that's essentially the experience I've been chasing. And then how that ties back into what you asked about, like old server, I'm um, talking to like a new deployed app or like an old front end talking to a new deployed app. The way that Lambda approaches this problem is it approaches it in an always forward upgrade. So basically all the different deploys that you've had version A, type A to type B to type C to type D, it keeps that chain of migrations. So basically, if it receives in-flight stuff from an old app, it'll go through the upgrade path so that the new app knows how to handle it. And all of the clients are kind of always forced forward. So that doesn't only happen in the back end, the migrations also happen in the front end. So this is basically what I demoed at Elm was this idea that like, if I'm interacting with an app, and we've done all this. We know that you know we've got this function from type A to B. There's kind of no reason why we couldn't just real-time upgrade the user as they're using the app, and things should just continue working. Things should just flow. You know, the front end will bring in the new code. It'll migrate everything up, and it's kind of like a hot reload happened underneath their feet. I mean, maybe they'd be a little bit confused in some scenarios. If you've ripped out a massive feature, maybe you should consider your users <laughs> and you know be like, hey, I notice you're on this page, but it doesn't exist anymore. But kind of like in most cases, and uh, definitely for a lot of hobby apps and web apps, you know, most people kind of won't notice anyway. So I feel like that's a lot, <laughs> but they're the various pieces involved, if that makes sense. No, that's that's super cool. I've definitely used some apps in the past that will say things like, hey, like I'll get interrupted by a little pop-up that says, there's a new version out, you need to refresh the page or something like that. And it sounds like this is like hopefully more graceful than that. Although I take your point that there's limits on how graceful that can be, depending on what, what change you're making. And I guess there's also a question of over time, so you're applying all these migrations incrementally on every single HTTP request, at least until the user's client upgrades. So I guess you could theoretically end up in some pathological scenarios where like somebody's got a super old client and they come back and it's just like stacking up all the migrations takes forever. But then I guess also you have... How does the server, I guess, does the server do the same thing in reverse when it's sending data back to the client? Like, if it's like, oh, this is a super old client. I need to translate my data all the way back into a format it understands. Or how does that no. work? No. So initially, that's what I wanted to do. So when I when I um, presented Evergreen at first, I, I drew up this diagram, right? Like, and so you've got like old, old front end and old back end and new front end, new back end. And there's kind of like, there's a bunch of arrows and arrows that go backwards between the two, right? And I realized that like those things don't actually commute. I can't remember the analogy. I had a rather simple analogy off the top of my head. I don't remember it anymore. But basically, there was a scenario where it's like, if you send something to a new app and then it downgrades and sends something back to you and you keep communicating, you can express a version of two apps where it'd be like, you just cannot get consistent logic between that, right? Like it just, it would be insane to try and, I, I try and it, yeah. figure it out. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so what Lambda uh, does is it's kind of like always forward. So no one ever talks to anybody behind them. 
they always bring everything forward. So what a front end will do is if a front end receives a version of a message from a higher version than it's on, it'll kind of immediately be like, whoa, 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 we're behind. And the assumption is that if they've been able to receive that message, presumably they have connectivity. So it'll immediately pull for the upgrade. And as soon as it gets the upgrade, it can do all of the upgrades. And then now that message that had come in off the kind of queue can now actually be handled. So it's kind of like shifts everything type safe upwards and tries to synchronize it. So yeah, the front ends will, as a matter of principle, always try and upgrade as soon as possible in every scenario. This is very cool. I mean, I've, I've known about Lambda for a while, but like, you know, I, I don't always have necessarily a sense of like what's done and what's like, you know, a goal. But I, I did recently find out there's somebody who's involved with Rock who has been using Lambda at work. And we were on a, a group chat, like just periodically we'll like get together and talk about Rock stuff. And he mentioned this. He's like, yeah, my startup is actually built on Lambda. And somebody else on the call immediately was like, are you hiring? That was like the next thing that he said, <laughs> like, <laughs> which oh, I thought amazing. was, I have not heard that before of like someone mentions a technology and then like, okay, sure. I've, I've heard it for like Elm and stuff, but like, it's very rare to hear someone say it like, and certainly the first time I've heard it about like a framework or, or I don't know what you would classify Lambda as, but certainly it's not its own language where somebody mentions it and that they're using it. And the next thing that anyone says is, are you hiring? <laughs> it's a pretty good endorsement. Yeah, I got to I got to figure out how to turn that into a testimonial on the homepage. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, so that particular individual Martin, he's uh, been around definitely from like the early phases and the stuff that they're doing uh, at work is pretty awesome, but I think even more awesome is all the kind of side projects that that Martin's done and for me, I think the most exciting thing about all of this is like ultimately my goal for Lambda is it's the thing that I wanted to exist because I just have all these ideas and all these little projects that I've always wanted to do. And over like the last decade and a half of my career, like I've always started them and I've always kind of just like, it hasn't changed that they are things that I wanted to exist. Like just like really, really dumb things. Like literally every six months at the gym, I get frustrated that I'm having to like manually in my head, try and track like which set I'm on, how many sets I've done, what weight I should be doing and how much of a pause time I should have between things, right? I'm sure I've built like the gym automation little app thing like seven times now, right? Like I've built it in React. I built it in Vue. There was an original version in JavaScript. There was a crazy version. And there's like, I can't remember it now. There's something that compiles Ruby to JavaScript. And like, like each time I tried to Opal? do it, I'm like, oh, yeah, Opal, that's the one. Yeah. And each time I was like, oh, this will be the one. Like I'll finally, you know, this technology change is going to be the thing and that's the answer and every time like i kind of end up grinding to a halt and i kind of i just you know rather than doing gym timing i'm like learning about graphql or debugging nulls in some interop thing you know and i'm just never like really doing the gym problem so yeah ultimately lambda was like i want this to exist to let me finish these projects and also to like maybe like other people will find it as something that lets them build things that are otherwise not worth building, right? Like you just, it just takes too much time to set up all this infrastructure and do all this kind of stuff. And yeah, uh, Martin for sure has built like so many cool, cool little apps in the last, uh, in the Lambda version one release, I I did like a showcase of a bunch of apps in there, which maybe we can put a link on the Elm discourse if anyone's interested. But Martin built a bunch and a bunch of other people built like lots of really cool 
basically hobby grade-ish things, but they're all like people say themselves to me like, yeah, I don't know if I would have done this if if it wasn't for Lambdera. So that that for me, I'm like, yeah, that's it. That that makes it worthwhile, I think. Yeah, just just like a super low barrier to entry. It's like all you gotta do is like write your front end code and then write your persistence code and you don't have to think about a database or like how to set any of that up. It just it just sort of happens. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I have to be reminded a little bit of Dark, the programming language, which is a lot bigger in scope, granted. But it's a similar kind of theme of like, there's all this work you have to do that's not really specific to your application. It's just like everybody has, it's like a tax on on everybody. I am kind of curious what you see as like the broader scope or ambitions of Lambda. Like, is this something that you're like, hopefully someday lots of enormous businesses will use this or is it like mainly you're thinking about that like the hobby projects that originally motivated it or like what are you thinking yeah so i think (laughs) somewhat frustratingly i think like the easy the low blow kind of punch for lambda is that a lot of people would just be like oh but how does it scale and i'm like ah like (laughs) it's just i was thinking about this the other day i'm like it feels a little bit without being too like condescending to the people ask that because it's a fair enough question for certain use cases but it feels like you being like hey i'm i'm like i've got you know i've i've invented electric cars like i'm i'm doing this like you know it's like cars but like kind of different and it's like you know instead of fuel burns like you use electricity and blah blah whatever like there's differences but you know it gets you from a to b it's all new thing and someone being like yeah but like does it get you to the moon and i'm like no (laughs) No, it's a car. It's not a rocket. It's a car. Like it, the, the, like, you know, like the does it scale to me is like, yeah, but is it this enormous, completely different thing? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Granted, like I understand, like it, you know, it's obviously the the scaling path from a car to a rocket is where that analogy severely breaks down compared to, yeah, I suppose scaling scaling up. But in some ways, no. Like you know, if you're Google, I think at some point you can't even go from like a Rails app to Google, right? Like you. At some point, you go, all right, we're rewriting this whole thing because it's not purpose-built kind of thing. Well, I think I, if I could like put myself in the shoes of people who are asking that question, like I have certainly had it happen in my career that I have felt burned by a technology that was like really nice to get started with. And then after some period of time using it, I felt like, oh no, I'm now stuck with this. And like, I can't fix these problems. I'm just going to have to rewrite. And so it's kind of a shortcut for like, if I use this and I'm happy with it early on and I'm successful, later on, am I just going to have to rewrite? And I wish there were some like cultural thing or something around like making it easier to ask that question or like in a more direct way, because will it scale is not, I'm guessing if I'm, if, if it's me and I'm in those shoes, Will at scale is not really what I'm asking about because like you said, what technology looks exactly the same from when you use it for your hobby project and when you're at Google scale? I like nothing. I mean, like maybe, maybe it's something like, I don't know, like some NoSQL thing for persistence. But even in that case, you're still probably gonna have to deal with going from one machine to multiple machines. And that's perhaps more straightforward than if you have a relational database, but it's not trivial. So there's there's no like, I like will it scale? I don't think is really a binary. It's really a question of like, what's going to change if I use this thing at scale? But then again, yeah, it also matters like what size of scale are we talking about here? Is scale like 
going from I use this for myself at the gym to like I and my friends use this? Or is it like this is on the publicly traded company now because of how many people are using this at the gym? <laughs> it's just totally different questions. Yeah. So I have two, I have two answers to that. So the first is reframing that question. So I think what people are really trying to ask when they say, does this scale? The implicit question is, is this for me? Like, should I use this? And so I've kind of turned around and be like, you know what? And again, (laughs) this may sound a little disparaging, but this comes out of my own frustration. Part of my frustration with everything that I tried to do on the road to Lambda was like the hype cycle. Like I understand the need for it sometimes and Pete, and you're trying to launch your product and whatever. But like, I feel like every single tech website I look at, there isn't a single one that's like, hey, get started in 47 days. Like, like <laughs> each, one, each one I guarantee you is sub in like low digit, either minutes or seconds. One got released today. Someone announced like a, oof, what was it? While you're looking that up, I got I to gotta put in a plug for a website that is so funny that I literally just thought about this yesterday for no reason, which is HTML9 Boiler Strap. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but yes, it's, I have. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to look it up. I bet it still holds up. Like I last looked at that a couple of years ago, but yeah, it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's just an amazing, amazing website. HTML yeah, boiler strap. That nails it, right? Like that's that's part of the trope that, that I'm I'm talking about. And to be fair, so the, the one I was thinking of today, SQL, a startup that's got Elm entirely in their front end, they're kind of wrapping GraphQL as a service. Looks really, really cool. But again, like front and center on like the home pages, get started in less than five seconds, right? And so yeah, I kind of have like a low-key hatred for, for that style of marketing because I'm like Man, it, it it like it implies to me that you know I'm going to get started quickly and it's things are going to stay quick, but it doesn't really take into account like maybe I won't get started quickly if my use case isn't here, or maybe I'm going to get terribly burnt by this. And it's part of it I feel like is like a little bit of a disrespect of time for your users. So I kind of like thinking about what I wanted for Lambda. Like the goal is to reduce glue, reduce complexity, and therefore reduce the amount of time that you waste. Right? So I thought, well, if that's the spirit of Lambda, then we should just be really upfront. So what I have is I have like an anti-marketing page, just like, here's the pitch against Lambda. Don't use it. Like, don't use Lambda. Here's lots of reasons why you shouldn't use it. Is this the best way for me to become a unicorn company? Probably not. I'm going to say <laughs> this is not helping my cause. Is this the best way for me to end up with a small group of customers who are super excited and the product fits and works for them really well. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so, right? Um, so yeah, if you want to check it out, lambda.com slash shouldn't dash use. And I kind of outline a bunch of this stuff, right? So that, that's how I tackle the scaling problem. It's one of the points in there. But there's like lots of other reasons that you might not want to use it. And also there's like contextualization, like for scaling at the moment I'm benching. I haven't spent a huge amount of time on this because it just hasn't been necessary for the kind of use cases that are on there. But, um, you know, like we're benching like around about a thousand requests, like pessimistically a thousand requests a second right between a single front end and a single backend and so it's like okay for me and my career that's like 99% of the websites I've worked with have been well 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 below that threshold right there's, like, there's never been a time you've had that many even like you know I've worked for like Black Friday click sale things and even then like you get 10,000 people on the site at once but not all 10,000 of them are clicking and doing stuff in the same second right so it is like there's a really big buffer of like 
scale within there, I feel, right? And then obviously some people will be like, no, I work, I don't know, in some sort of real-time bidding thing in finance. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You should not be coming anywhere near this at this stage. So yeah, that's that's like one side of does it scale, aka is this for me? The other side of the question I think is really interesting. You said something about like how not a lot of hobby grade things have like a path to becoming the production grade or, or high scale kind of things, right? Usually there's a point where you go, all right, dump all that. Let's start again and do it quote unquote properly. That I find really interesting. I also, I'm also super hesitant to talk about it because it's just ideas, you know, and like a lot of hand waving and it could be like, it's like the XKCD thing. It's like, oh, I need to know where this photo is from. And it's like, yeah, yeah, give me five minutes. That'll be like, let's just look up. It's like, oh, and I also need to know whether there's a bird in the picture. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to need a research team of 10 people in five years. It's like the, the <laughs> magnitude that that jumps, like that the kind of things that uh, the ideas that I have for how Lambda could scale over time are those kinds of problems. But I'm really excited by this idea that by no merit of my own, just by accident, I think the fact that purity and a lack of side effects and the type checking stuff like for Evergreen those kind of things are a really nice kind of breeding ground for like performance and scale, which obviously I don't need to tell you, like all the stuff that you're doing <laughs> with Rock is very similar in that realm. So yeah, I think there's stuff in Lambda's future where I'm pretty optimistic that there could be a path over time where the features that get added to Lambda allow high scale use cases without you having to fundamentally change how you develop the product. Well, I mean, be careful though, because if you do that, you might have to rewrite your whole anti-marketing page. That's a risk. What if you're like, actually, it's great for scaling. That's a selling point now. <laughs> <laughs> have to flip it. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to do decades of damage <laughs> painting the wrong. <laughs> yeah, so I actually try. I keep on that page. I keep crossing out the things that are changing, so I keep them there, but like I keep crossing them out. And oh, I actually, cool. yeah, I've already, I've already had people come and be like, oh, like you know can you do this yet? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, that's from two years ago. That's no longer a thing. But yeah, I don't know. I still think it's worth saving people the time up front and building that trust and reputation. Hopefully later I can cash that in and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is totally going to solve all your problems now. People actually believe me. <laughs> that's a cool approach though, because I think like there's two ways to look at something like that. Like one is it's like, oh, you're just trying to be honest and upfront. But another way is to look at it as like, you're just trying to select for people having a good time with the thing you've built because what happens if people show up and they have the wrong idea and they do get burned it's not like that's if you're being totally selfish that's still bad for you they're not gonna go around and tell all their friends like the story they might have told which is like oh i looked at lambda but it's not for me instead they'll be telling their friends i use lambda let me tell you why you shouldn't use lambda because i had a terrible experience and on and on yeah i, I like that idea i, I wish more of technologies would do it now i'm thinking about how how could i do something similar for rock just like i mean like we have an faq but like i think this is more than that it's more like let me be proactive about telling you all of the like trade-offs you know that, that you should be aware of yeah that's cool so i think it's actually come up recently i had an idea on how how so this is kind of more generally speaking not just about lambda like if you were to try and sell in this way where you're like I mean, like ultimately everything is a sell, right? Like you're, you're trying to convince people of something that you believe or you hold dear. They can counter to that. But yeah, ultimately in this way, if you go up front and be like, okay, here's all the downsides, I think 
maybe one approach then is to be like, now that I've been really upfront and honest with the downsides, let me tell you about these incredible upsides, like kind of a little bit unbelievable ones. The one that's kind of in progress at the moment, but it will definitely be in the next version that I'm, I'm super excited about because it just, it shook out so easily. So Martin had this idea of being like, what would it take if we could like have a closer connection between, well, you're building an app and you've got stuff in the front end, right? And oftentimes I do this. It's like, I see there's like some styling's wrong, something's wrong in this little widget, right? And kind of what's the first thing to do? What I do is I kind of go, okay, step one, I'm going to highlight some of that text. I'm going to try guess, like you don't want too much of it, right? Because then you won't find it. But I'm going to highlight some subset of that text and grep through my project and hope that like I luck out and I find that string, right? And I'm like, nice, now I'm close to the thing. If you're really unlucky, you'll do that and always get a hit for a translation file, right? Then you'd be like, God damn, like it's, like it's, not <laughs> it's removed from where right, I'm at. Right, right. And then you're like, oh, now you're trying to search for the translation key or whatever. Or you might be like, oh, I can't find that. Like, you know, it looks like a calendar. Looks like a calendar dropdown. I'm going to try search for calendar dropdown. You know, like, in the, like, especially if you're an unfamiliar code base. Or if you're like me, you've left the code base for three weeks and you're like, I don't remember anything. And so Martin like kind of asked this question. I was like, oh yeah, maybe we could do that with AST. And I was like, you know, let's jump on a call. I'll just show you through some of the, the compiler internals. And like a couple of hours later, he was like, hey, I've got this proof of concept, check it out. And so basically what he'd done is for Elm UI specifically for now, which is a slightly constrained problem, but there's no reason this couldn't work for any HTML in Elm. If you kind of browse around in your app and press a particular hotkey, It'll put like a hover state on everything. And so now you can hover to any part of the UI and it'll do a little dropdown. And little dropdown will show you the hierarchy tree of like the functions that were involved in building that specific value. Oh, wow. And if you click on any of those, it'll fire up your editor and jump you straight to that line. That for me was one of those moments where I was like, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that I can take zero like claim to fame for anything involved in that feature being possible like it's literally just because of how elm is like it's just structured type safe builds up all the values once it compiles we know we can trust the ast and then based on that knowledge we can build stuff right so um all i did was like expose that and 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 someone was able to build something cool with it and then i was like immediately like man i want this on my javascript projects like what would that take i'm pretty sure it's impossible I'm sure you could get a heuristic and you could kind of get maybe some of the way there. And like, I don't know if people are using like React templating, maybe there's a preprocessor that you could hook into so you could get like line numbers and whatever. But ultimately somewhere in your JavaScript code base, you can just like have random strings concatenating into stuff and like, you know, like there's, there's nothing to track, so to speak. So it's like, it's a, it's a much, 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 much harder problem. It's definitely not like, hey, someone who's never worked on the compiler before can go off for a couple of hours. So yeah, that there's, I feel, so much more stuff that could be done that's like that and leveraged like that. And so I'm, yeah, I'm ultra excited about that. So that's my strategy. It's going to be like, here's all the downsides. You should definitely not use it. Please like stay away from Landera. Also, here's this amazingly cool thing. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> and then, you know, that's the both worlds. That does sound really nice. We don't use LMUI at work, but man, it would be it would be really nice to have that. That's definitely like a yeah, it's a it's a pain point ever since we moved away from, you know, having like CSS classes. That was the old like easy way to identify stuff. 
was like, oh, I just grab a couple of CSS classes. You can find out where those are being used. But there's other downsides to having that, of course. But yeah, that's really cool. I'm really curious. So like you've now seen a couple of different people using Lambda for different things. What's the distribution like? Is it like a lot of people just doing hobby projects? Is it like at least one person doing a startup, obviously? What are you seeing? Yeah, so I would say it feels to me like it's kind of order of magnitude step down. So we've got, it's kind of like about, oh, actually, I might have to take a look again. But I think the last time I took a look, there was around about 300. Okay, so there's 350 apps built with Lambda. And there's, we've got around about 500 users total. But a bunch of people that build apps kind of build more than one app. So if we kind of talk down, talk the step down, it's like, of so talking about around about 400 apps if we kind of drop down there's like in the range of like 40 like 30 that are paid apps and then of those there's at the moment four that are professional tier so like the i'm probably using this for business kind of tier so i don't know i I used to work in digital agencies and and do e-commerce stuff and kind of you know if you could get two to five percent conversion and they would like the kind of ranges of people would be like that's kind of normal so it's probably a little bit lower than that but yeah, I would say like the bulk of those apps are people trying stuff out for hobby. Some people are kind of impressed with it and love it enough that they're like, you know what, this is worth paying for. And then, yeah, there's like a handful of users that are really into it and like, yeah, I want to use this at work. You know, I believe that this is this is providing enough time-saving value and headache and maintenance and upgrades and whatever value. And yeah, it's just carrying that kind of Elm experience. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I was talking with Paul Bigger, who works on Dark Lang the other day, and he was kind of talking about this, like building a tool that you charge money for. And I think it was in that conversation that we were talking about was like, for people making software for programmers, there's the whole like, do everything open source, don't charge for anything route, which from a user's perspective is quite nice. I, I like not having to pay for things. But on the other hand, how do the people who make the thing get paid? And then people are like, wait a minute, there's this crisis in open source where no one's getting paid. It's like, well, these are related. <laughs> and then there's there's also some projects where which take what I think is a very reasonable position, which is like, well, we have costs. And so if you like our thing, you should give us some money and that's we're going to charge for it. And then it sounds like that's what you're doing with Lambda. Like there's like a free tier, but then there's like, you know, so this is not just like an open source. It's for free and you'll just pay all the, everyone's server costs forever kind of a project. Yeah, so I think probably probably in that respect is kind of similar to Dark. I mean, I, I became aware of Dark a couple of years ago and, I've, uh, and I was kind of interested because I wouldn't say that they're a competitor to Lambda, but they're probably like the closest thing that I've seen so far. Maybe just a different emphasis on, on goals, I think. But in terms of the kind of licensing stuff, like I, I, so the model that Dark has is like a source available but not open source. So you have to like sign a contributor's agreement and and the license is, is kind of there and it's restrictive. And so Lambda is the same. I just don't have the source public at the moment. So basically I'm making it source available to companies that want to pay for the pro apps or like committing to using the product. Because I'm like, yeah, okay. Like if you're committing in some sense, you're taking that risk. At the very least, you should have access to the source code in case, you know, I get hit by a bus or whatever. I've got a couple of people who are like custodians over over stuff, Martin being one of them because of his um, kind of commitment to things. So there's like a bit of a narrative there around how do you isolate some of the risks of that kind of sole, sole developer kind of thing going on. But yeah, like the, the commercialization stuff is really tricky. It's actually a really boring reason why I didn't go the open source route. It's mainly because it's a non-trivial additional amount of work. 
immediately the very first thing that would happen, I believe, the first thing that would happen were Lambda to be entirely open sourced is you get people coming along being like, hey, how do I run this on my own server? And it's like, that's oftentimes not a code problem. That's like a, what operating system, what, you know, you're in AWS and they're like, oh, this thing's breaking. And it's like, oh, you know, I have no idea now. Is that anything to do with what I've done? Is that their thing? Like, it's just, it's just a, and to make that a nice experience. And even like people go, oh, we'll just like bundle it in Docker. And I'm like, yeah, but that would, that's a thing, you know, like that's now a thing I'd have to do to make a self-installed bundler or whatever that. Is not something I need to do now. Then for the same reason that I'm skeptical of other solutions because of the problems that run into the past, I ask those same questions. I'm like, yeah, so that's great. Say you've done a really easy bundling, they're running it on their server. Now they want to upgrade their server. What about migrations? I was like, well, if only you had a typeset, you know, but like you know, <laughs> now you're like, you're out of that realm because Lambda, like Lambda isn't self-hosted, right? You can't like the infrastructure isn't on Lambda. It doesn't have all those guarantees. So I'm like, right, I'm basically buying in all these problems that I'm banging about avoiding and trying to do everything as open source. I'm like, it just, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense for how much time and resources I have at the moment. So yeah, in the future, I mean, if, if Lambda blows up and there's tons of money flying around, yeah, it'd be totally awesome to have it all open source. I'd love to do that. But yeah, right now it's more practicality. Yeah, I get that. I mean, there's always something a little bit frustrating about like, I work on some project and there's like a set of people who aren't paying for it. And maybe they should, you know, maybe I've set expectations that like, hey, this is a free thing. You you don't have to pay for it. Free is in money. But like, it's a little bit frustrating when I'm doing that. And then someone's like, hey, you should make this more free or easier for me to use. But this is not how I want to spend my time on my project. I, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just like, I'm just doing this thing and I'm like making it available if you don't like it. Okay, that's fine. But like, it's always like, I don't know. I guess maybe that's just like the way I was raised, but it, it just it just feels like a weird thing to ask people for more when they're like giving you something for free, which like someone might say, well, that's just a free tier because, you know, you're going to upsell to like a premium thing, which like, okay, fair enough. But you're actually providing a thing that's literally zero dollars and like people can come use it and whatever. And so I know that like, just because I've seen this happen on 100% of proprietary things that you're probably part of that 100% that like some people are like, actually, this is a moral thing. And as a moral matter, this should be free software. And you should have probably a copy left license, ideally, and not, you know, even like a MIT or BSD or something like that. Has that happened? That has actually happened. So I've had a, I'm a handful of people. <laughs> I didn't, people I didn't and, anticipate that. <laughs> no, that, yeah, yeah, I've had people try and leverage that as a reason for why I should make everything open. I understand it to some extent, but I'm also aware of like, that's a power lever in some regards. It doesn't feel nice. It doesn't feel nice because it feels like you're being manipulated, I think is the root of that. But anyway, setting that aside and assuming they don't have ba- bad intentions, like it is objectively true that um, Lambda is entirely built on the back of like a mountain of open source stuff, right? Like it, I would not have been able to do everything from scratch. So the way that I've been thinking about it, like there's two things. There's there's a moralistic thing here and then there's like a very obvious contradiction that I don't think people are willing to accept, <laughs> broadly speaking. So, so the moralist thing is I would like eventually for the compiler. So you don't have to pay anything for Lambda to use the compiler and develop stuff locally. You don't even have to sign up for a Lambda account. Like you can build apps locally and play with stuff locally. The only point where it kind of tips over is if you want to deploy stuff, then you enter the Lambda ecosystem, then you need an account, right? But all of the tooling is available for free. So for that side of things, I would like to make that open source eventually. 
again, the only reason I haven't so far is it's just a practicality of like the maintenance and the cleanup and, and yeah, you know, there's some, now, some now you're pride. on the hook for supporting and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some pride in there as well. Like, you know, I've, I've done dodgy things in behind closed doors cause I know like I, I have a limited amount of time. I just want to get this out and then it works and then I don't touch it for a while. Right. So like there's some stuff like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that should probably be done a little bit better um, if it's going to be open. But on the other side of things, when it comes to kind of open sourcing the platform, the most common thing people have said to me is like, it should be an open platform so that I can go and deploy it on like a cloud provider. And I'm like, right. And so what cloud provider do you use? And they're like, Amazon. I'm like, okay, that's cool. And what things of Amazon's do you use? They're like, oh yeah, like we use RDS and Elastic Beanstalk and Route 53 and blah and blah. And I'm like, right. So you're saying that like, and often the argument is like, oh, I want it so because I can move cloud providers, right? But like I can't move like, I can't move providers with Lambda. If I don't like you one day, I can't take my stuff elsewhere. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But like the only, re- <laughs> it feels to me, maybe it's too cynical, but it feels to me the only reason this holds is because everybody's using AWS. And so the fact that hardly anybody's actually moving between cloud providers doesn't really matter. Everyone's kind of like, yeah, we'll just ignore the fact that there is no equivalent to Elastic Beanstalk and you're going to be rewriting your entire deployment infrastructure if you try and move to Google or anything, right? But we're just going to forget all that and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, no one's, no one's going to get fired for picking Amazon because it's a closed source system. But in its vast, vast, vast majority, Amazon is a closed platform, right? Like they, they, they try and give you, it's kind of like open tooling, but closed platform. So yeah, that's, that's basically the same way that I'm approaching Lambda. Again, mainly because it's like, the alternative to that would be you'd have to be better than Amazon, right? You'd have to be open tooling and open platform. And then we're back in the same spot before where it's like, you know, you're doing support requests for helping people set up their bare metal servers on Solaris or whatever. And I don't even, <laughs> like, how do I, how do you install package? I've never, you know, yeah. And then that's, that's kind of where you are. So yeah, yeah, they're, no, they're to- to- po- totally understandable. Problems. Cool. So what's like next on the roadmap? I mean, we've kind of talked about like how you got here and some of the stuff that's already really cool today. And I guess you like hinted a little bit at some of the like future stuff, but any other particularly cool things on the horizon? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So what I'm currently working on, the way that I've been developing Lambda is kind of like against the big pain points, right? So, so up until like version one, the big pain point was that you could irrevocably lose all of your data. And that seemed somewhat bad right like you've had a bad migration just go away forever (laughs) um so i was like you know that's that's pretty important so i'll focus on that so like that's no longer the case now like you know now we've got like the snapshotting and the message logging and it's and it's got multiple redundant backups and that all that kind of stuff is there so i think the last remaining like i mean it's it's not like it's not a deal breaker but i think it makes for a crap experience and surprisingly to me i just never i never even thought this would be a thing but i guess it it has it has shown to be writing migrations when your model is fairly comprehensive writing it like from scratch is really quite painful and the main reason for that is that in elm two identical custom types defined in different files like in different modules are not actually equal Right? So if they've got exactly the same name, exactly the same constructors, exactly the same parameters, they're not actually equal. Right. So if you write a function from type A to type B, you can't just be like, well, this custom type is just the old one because it hasn't changed because the, the compiler will be like, no, no, like they're not the same type. They're from different places. So what you end up having to do is you end up currently having to manually write out like case old of 
every single constructor variant to every single the exactly the same construct, constructor variant of the of the new type. And then that like that's a bit sucky. And and like most people, it's like once you write your first big one, it's not that hard to just kind of copy paste them and do it. Um, but I was like, the compiler has enough information to be able to do this most of this for you. So that's what I'm working on now, like having a huge amount of that just be auto-generated and then markers put in place to be like, hey, like here I didn't know what you wanted me to do, right? Like this dictionary has become a record. Like I I can't do that for you. Like you got to tell me what you want. So hopefully like the migration surface area will be reduced massively, like like an order of magnitude. It's frustrating because that's just like a mechanical thing, right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure people yeah, will be it's super excited. It'll thing. just be like, yeah, it'll be like, oh, cool, great. I don't have to do this thing anymore. Right? It doesn't make you excited. Right. It just makes you relieved <laughs> of the pain that you're avoiding. <laughs> but yeah, after that, yeah, there are definitely like a bunch of things that I want to do. I don't know in what order. I know the order in which I'm excited and the order in which I'm excited is probably inverse to the the difficulty of the things to do. But maybe if I would, I would have touched on two. So one, that feels like kind of like a root thing that actually I'm not the only one in the own community kind of toying around in these realms. I've actually got proof of concepts and I've been working on this for a long time, but it would be nice to get it polished. One of the downsides that you don't have, like one of the features that you would normally have by default in a web app is introspectability of your backend, right? So say you've done something in Postgres, you get one of the hundreds of Postgres clients, you connect to your database, bam, like all your data's there. You fiddle with it to your heart's desire and it's kind of like, it's very high on the accessibility axis, but also very high on like the, if you do the wrong thing, you will break your app axis, right? Like it's, it's completely untyped, right? And so what I would really love to do is have basically a type safe CRUD interface on the entire backend model. But rather than it just be like you can fiddle with stuff and make mistakes, I kind of want it to be aware. So for example, like if you were looking at a custom type, I imagine that that should automatically become like a dropdown or in certain scenarios, it should automatically become a dropdown. So it'd be like, well, you can change this value, but you can only change it to one of the other variants that you've actually got in the production app at the time that you're editing this model. The thing that I'm really excited about is that the normal path to doing that, if you were editing stuff in Postgres or even building, I keep using Postgres because it's the database that I use most, but and SQL, any transaction data, right? If you're by default writing tooling to like modify stuff in your data, it's kind of like a back door, if that makes sense. Like it's not going through the main infrastructure of your app, right? So you, so you don't know if you're holding invariants or whatever. But the cool thing that with the Elm architecture is the way that this feature would be done, the implementation I have in mind, it would be that every single edit would basically be a patch message, like a typed patch message that's part of the overall messages for your app. So not only would you be able to kind of massage and, and change stuff in production and fix things right outside of your app, you would actually also have it in the log. And as some people are probably well familiar with, one of the nice things about having a log is you can have replay like in the OM debugger. So I would then love to be able to be like, you can pull down sets of your backend model, like especially say you're debugging an issue. You're like, I know between this time and this time, something went weird with the data and you could just scrub back and forth and see in real time, like the stuff that's changing, right? Because you've got your whole, basically your whole state is there, right? And we keep all of the logs of all the changes. So I, right, I really, so it's I'm time really travel excited across rows in the database. So to yeah, speak. yeah, exactly. So I'm really excited. This is, it's kind of possible because of the architecture, right? And because we've got some of those guarantees there that make stuff like that possible. And yeah, I think that's that idea of being like, being able to type safely. So I think like 
the way that I've been thinking about it is Elm is really, really good at all this like type safe stuff when you're making your app. So I'd say like code level type safety. And I'm kind of thinking about really extending that to value level type safety. So like now my code is live and I have these values. There's room for like a story and an exploration there of like what value level type safety looks like and being able to interact with those values in a type safe way. That's the first big thing. That's certainly an exciting prospect. I mean, the only database I know of that has like sort of time travel type features built in as a first class thing would be Datomic. But obviously that's like type safety is like a totally different story there. Very cool. I mean, that seems like a good spot to wrap up. I'm always excited to hear about like the stuff you're working on because I've been, yeah, like I said, following this for several years. It's it's nice to hear like where, where you are and where you're headed. Yeah, best of luck with it. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks for coming on the program. No, thanks for having me. It's been a delight.